Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and turn with us to Romans chapter 1, as today Pastor Mitch Pridgen considers the thankfulness of the Apostle Paul for the Christians at Rome. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of, book of Romans. And I, I want to read verses 1 through 15. In that this makes up, as you'll see in a moment, the greeting and, in fact, an introduction. They flow together. So I want to read verses 1 through verse 15. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may know at least, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. But that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to, co- to preach the gospel to you who, are also, who also are in Rome." Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Father, for this precious body of believers gathered together here this morning. I ask that your Holy Spirit would be mighty in our midst to teach us, for he is the great teacher from this tremendous source of his own authorship, the word of God, inerrant, infallible, and inspired by you. So, Lord, as our hearts now would be made ready to receive your word. Might your spirit take your word, apply it to our hearts to bring about the change and transformation in us that brings you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want to continue my exposition of Romans, of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And you'll recall last Lord's Day I completed the exposition of the first seven verses of the opening chapter of this letter, which make up what I called and what you may see at the top of your subtitle to this first seven verses in your Bible, the introduction or Paul's introduction. But 
as we saw from the very length of that exposition, that took me about three weeks to go through, I'm not mistaken, to go through three or four weeks to go through those seven verses. Those seven verses are more than just Paul simply saying, hello, friends. There's a lot more to it than that. And in the opening verses, Paul identified himself as a servant. And we, we look at that word doulos, which is slave, translated in the Greek of Christ or bondservant. So he addresses himself, tells you who he is, and he tells you that he is a servant of Jesus Christ or a bondservant or slave of Christ. And then he speaks of his calling to be an apostle, one who is commissioned by the Lord himself to go out and take the message of the gospel to the nations. He speaks of his being set apart for the gospel of God and then tells his readers what the gospel is all about. It was prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament and the message of the gospel is actually a person, the Son of God, the one who was fully man, descended from the line of David according to the flesh, or descended from David according to the flesh, and fully God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. Paul then in verse 6 speaks of the calling of those he is writing to. And Paul uses this phrase in verse 6. He says, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And he uses that phrase in reference to their election. It is in reference to God's effectual call on this group to salvation. And as I said last week when addressing this, the effectual call, the effective call or effectual call as it is referred to always leads to salvation for the one who is called. When God issues that effective or effectual calling, it always brings about the salvation of those who are called. This is borne out in what Paul says in verse 7, who are loved by God and are called to be saints. So they are the objects of God's love that identifies them as His. These ones Paul is writing to belongs to Christ. And by referring to them as saints, Paul is saying that it is God who has set them apart, not only set them apart from their sin and their former lives, but He has set them apart unto Himself. God has separated them from the world and brought them into Himself. And Paul closes his introduction, or actually his greeting, the first part of his greeting, by further reinforcing their election by referring to God as God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The use of the plural possessive pronoun, our. He's not only my God, my Lord, my Savior, He's our God, our Lord, our Savior. Now the reason I referred to verses 1 through 7 as Paul's greeting, and I said that, I'd say this to you in the beginning, as his greeting rather than the introduction is because in reality, his introduction continues in verse 8, from verse 8 all the way through verse 15. And let's look at these verses and let's try to glean from them what God is saying through his apostle who was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'll remind us of that as, as often as I possibly can, that this is not, not just a letter written or authored by man. Man was the instrument through which God gave us this letter. But the author of this letter is God Himself, the Holy Spirit. And so everything Paul is writing, everything that Paul is penning, everything that Paul is communicating is the Word of God. And so if you take that into consideration, nothing, nothing, he says, is insignificant. 
Nothing, he says, is unimportant. But every aspect, there's a thought, there's a purpose or reason behind each and everything that Paul writes because he's written, writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 8, Paul begins something here. He begins preparing his readers for a visit. As you know back from my introduction to this book, that Paul was not responsible for planting the church in Rome. In fact, we really have no idea to who was responsible for planting this church there. Unlike what perhaps Catholics might want to believe that, the, that Peter was responsible for planting this church or others might like to think some other patron saint was responsible for this church. In reality, the Bible does not tell us how this church came into existence except we get a hint when we turn to, to Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Because at the end of the identification of those who are visiting Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church, we are specifically told there were those who were from Rome present. Which meant they not only witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and witnessed the birth of the church, but they themselves very likely were swept into this revival, were themselves regenerated and born again. And when they returned home, at whatever point that was of the return home, it, it, it's not amazing to believe that somehow they started fellowships and began to worship together around their new faith. They were no longer Jews, per se, in the sense of now having received Christ as the Messiah. They were still Jews, but they were different from their former ways of practicing as Jews, and if they, were, if they were unbelievers or pagans, their lives had certainly changed. So there's no reason not to believe that they gathered together, and that's the purpose of this church coming together. And so Paul had never been there. Paul doesn't tell us who started the church, but Paul is anticipating a visit. He knows eventually he's going to get to Rome. And the fact that he has not been there, and it's very likely that Peter had not been, nor any of the other apostles had been to Rome, this church was a church who at that particular point in time had been in existence without direct apostolic instruction. In other words, an apostle had not been present. One of the original apostles had not been present to establish them in doctrine. And that's really what the book of Romans is. The first, the first 11 chapters of this book are highly doctrinal. I mean, they teach power. They identify what the gospel is, the doctrine of justification by faith. I mean, the whole, it's, it's a, it is a theological treatise for 11 chapters dealing with the whole, a whole gamut of theological issues. And that's, and that's coming from an apostle. But Paul begins writing in verse 8, and I think anticipating a visit and preparing to those who he would be visiting for his visit. In fact, as I was reading Barnhouse's commentary on Romans a few weeks ago, I, I really like what Barnhouse says in regards to Paul's pending visit to Rome. And listen to these. I've kind of paraphrased it and I've added a little bit to it, but he suggests, he suggests that such an introduction of himself and his plans were in order. Okay, if Paul's going to come, it's not like Paul just shows up unexpected. And all of a sudden, the church in Rome gets word, the apostles here. Where did he come from? Where is he? And they're somehow trying to figure out what's going on. Paul is preparing them for his anticipated entrance and visit there. Why would he feel it necessary? Well, I can think of a couple reasons why Paul might deem it necessary to at least let the believers there know that he's coming. Because, look, think with me for a moment. If you go back to Acts after Pentecost... 
and the birth of the church and the growth of the early church in the first few months and year of after following Pentecost, there was a great persecution that rose against the church. Who was leading that persecution? Isn't that interesting? So they would have left Jerusalem, gone back to Rome. What would have been potentially, just a supposition here, but a good one, I believe, a sound one biblically, what would have been their thoughts in regards to this one? The last thing they knew of him, certainly they had gotten news that he had, been, had become an itinerant, that he had become a preacher and had become an apostle and all, but yet still their, their minds would have been set on the fact of what he did while they were there in Jerusalem. So Paul had been known as a dangerous person who had early persecuted the believers in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So it was imperative, at least from Paul's perspective, I believe, that his readers know something about him. They know that I'm not the Paul, I'm not the Saul of Tarsus that you were familiar with in Jerusalem many years ago. No, that's been a major change, this transition. If this book was written, say, in AD 56, which is around 55 or 56, when we believe it was, then that would have been roughly what? 23 years. Over two decades would have passed. A lot of water has passed under the bridge by this time. And so Paul is preparing them. Just listen again, going back to verse 1, how he identifies himself. I, Paul, a former persecutor of the church. Remember that? No, that's not what he says. He says, Paul, a what? A doulos, a slave of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is who I am now. And this is the Paul that's going to be coming to you. Not the Saul that persecuted the church, but the Paul who is your fellow laborer, who is your fellow believer, who is a co-slave with you for the gospel and for the kingdom. He is now a messenger of the gospel. But there's another reason, too. I believe that Paul may have been preparing them. Paul may very well have desired to prepare them because no doubt they had heard of the difficulties. And I find this one a little bit comical, and maybe you will too, not in a, a joking sense or jovial sense, but it is interesting. They had heard of the difficulties that seemed to accompany him. Paul was not exactly a quiet... Paul never came anywhere and things remained quiet. Now, what was Rome all about? One word. What was Rome all about? Peace. In fact, during this time, it was identified as what? The Pax Romana, or the what? The, the peace of Rome. They were, remember, you can watch any passion movie. And what is it that Pontius Pilate is concerned most about in regards to the providence he has been given rulership over in Jerusalem? It is the peace. And so Paul, well aware that everywhere he goes, it seems like trouble follows him. And so here are the believers at Rome meeting in their home churches or however they are meeting in whatever public place or private places they are meeting. And they're doing so, might I say, perhaps below the radar of the Roman government, not fully, but for the most part below the radar. And now you've got the key figure. The key person of, at this time, Christianity, Paul the Apostle. And he says, I'm coming to you. And they're going, oh, no. Oh, no. In fact, think for a moment. He had caused a riot. He had caused a riot in Ephesus. Recorded for us in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. A riot breaks out. 
Well, that's not good for riots to break out, especially if you're going to be in Rome. That's the last place you want to have a riot. And then he was almost arrested in Thessalonica. And you remember the story recorded for us in Acts 17, verses 1 through 10 and following. He literally had to be taken by night by, by some of the brothers out of Thessalonica to Berea to avoid being arrested and causing another big turmoil. And so this is a close-knit community. You know, the Christian community is close-knit, even though there was not, you know, the type of communications we have today when there were needs, those needs in different communities were met by the churches of the other areas. So there was a communication that went on somehow among them by itinerant preachers or teachers that were going in in different places. And so they knew these stories. And so Paul is saying, I want to kind of, might, might, I, might I just say that Paul was saying in a way, let me forewarn you that I'm coming and things might not be well. With, with, with the world around him anyway. Not with his teaching. And so Paul had a history and a reputation for trouble. It wasn't that he went out and cited it himself. It was just by virtue of, I mean, the first thing he does as a Pharisee and as a rabbi, the first place he normally goes is right into the synagogue. And what does he begin to do? He begins to preach Christ. Well, they're really happy about that, right? And then when they run him out of the synagogue, then he stands in the public square. And what does he begin to do? He begins to pre preach Christ publicly. So he's preaching to Jews and to Gentiles alike, the gospel. And the people of the cities are usually not very happy. You have the Jews that are upset, and you have the pagans that are upset at Paul's preaching. So he was despised by the Jews who followed him relentlessly. Remember through our exposition of Acts, we dealt with that, where these Jews followed Paul relentlessly. There was a group that followed him everywhere he went. For the sole purpose of doing what? Disrupting his ministry. To discredit him. To falsely accuse him. To, to cause some type of turmoil. So he had the Jews who despised him. Who followed him relentlessly. And then he had the Roman authorities who didn't know what to do with him. He was a Roman citizen. There was only so much they could do with him. They couldn't treat him like a, a normal Jewish person or a non-Roman citizen. He, he had constitutional rights, so to say, under the Roman government. And so they didn't know what to do with him. And so, however, with all this in mind, and I've laid kind of a little bit of a foundation with all this in mind, look at how Paul expresses himself to these fellow believers. Number one. First, Paul says, first, I thank my God. Look at what he says in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. So here we see the way he expresses himself. No doubt, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, one specifically called to carry the gospel to the nations of the first century. Paul was indeed thankful for believers wherever they may be. It doesn't matter where, whether it's the most remote, insignificant, Lystra, Lystra, well, it doesn't matter, most insignificant places out there. It doesn't matter. Paul was concerned for believers. But think about it with me a moment, too. Especially would Paul show concern for those who were in the capital city of the whole empire of Rome. It's not that he didn't care for the small, insignificant places where believers gathered. But here are believers who are meeting and worshiping God. Where? In the very seat 
of world power at that time in the city of Rome. The fact that these believers had not only carried the gospel throughout the city, accompanied by their commitment to the gospel, was enough for Paul to be thankful. Consider with me for a moment. Paul has suffered dearly and severely for his commitment to the gospel. I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to get a horse here. I'll chase a rabbit or ride a horse. I don't need to ride. But I will tell you this, that I don't, I don't know how prosperity preachers deal with these passages of Scripture. But look in 2 Corinthians with me for a moment. Hold your place over in Romans. And, and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In fact, I could tell you a story I won't. One of my friends actually confronted a well-known, one of the most popular prosperity preachers and, and asked him to open his Bible and turn to chapter 11 and read these verses. And he stood there while the preacher did it. They were in a meeting together or at a bookseller's convention together. And after he made sure the guy read, he watched him read the scripture. He says, now, what do you have to say about that? And, and the prosperity preacher looked at him and said, wow, and closed his Bible and walked away. All he could say. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33, in these verses, Paul writes concerning his sufferings. In other words, what has Paul done? Those who say there's no place for suffering in a Christian's life don't understand the Christian life. And that, that's the doctrine that's out there today. If you're suffering, there's something wrong with you. That's a lack of faith. There's something in your life. There's sin. There's something wrong because you as a Christian should not be suffering. Then what's Paul's excuse? Other than the fact that he was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and called to take the gospel to the nations. And he suffered dearly for doing that very thing. Now, how would you like these things added to your resume? Let's say that you're considering hiring a church pastor. I hope that you're not considering that, but let, let's say that you are looking for a pastor. And you say, submit to me your resume. And, and this is the res, part of the resume that you get in verses 23, in verses 23 through 28. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one talking to false apostles and those who have attacked his ministry. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robber, robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and what? Hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow. Look at what Paul is saying there. All those things. Paul had reason. Paul had reason to be thankful that the gospel continued to spread and to gain faithful adherence. Whether these particular saints were the direct, direct result of Paul's ministry, which they were not, 
the issue with him was, was not different, was not changed. Regardless of how they had heard the gospel and how they came to saving, saving faith in Jesus Christ, Paul was thankful for them. He knew in reality God had done something. God had sovereignly called each and every one of them just like he had sovereignly called Paul. And Paul does not mention or even hint to how they came to faith in Christ. What he does do, however, is to give thanks where it belongs through Jesus Christ. You have come to faith how? Not through the preaching of some man, not because you followed some man, some man but you have come to faith in Christ through what? Or through who? Through Christ. It is God who's brought you sovereignly to a knowledge of His gospel. And that for that, Paul says, I am thankful. I am so thankful. And then secondly, Paul then gives the specific rather than the general reason I just mentioned for his thankfulness. He writes in verse 8, back to Romans 8, he writes, or Romans 1, he writes in verse 8, he says, Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul says, I'm thankful for you because your faith is spoken of in all the world or is mentioned, proclaimed in all the world. So Paul mentions what Calvin called the, quote, celebrity of their faith. The celebrity of their faith. Here they are. Think with me for a moment. Here they are, a group of Christians. Now, I want you to stop for a moment, and I really won't take long here, but stop for a moment and consider what this meant. You are in Rome, the seat of world authority at that time. The Roman Empire has basically conquered for the most part virtually all the known world. Not all of it, but virtually all the known world at that time, at least the western part of the world. And so think with me for a moment in regards to what it meant at that time to be called a Christian. They were followers of and believers in a seemingly nobody, are you ready for this, a seemingly nobody Jewish carpenter from a seemingly insignificant place in the Middle East, some remote part of the empire that had turned preacher and prophet who was, number one, vilified by his own people, and finally arrested, scourged, and crucified until dead by the very authorities of the Roman Empire. And here they are, followers of this person in Rome. We don't think anything about that today. I mean, in our Western society, especially America right now, and in times past, I mean, we could wear our little Christian pins and it meant absolutely nothing. In the sense that no one would be willing to critic. Oh, some might look at us and, and laugh or sneer, but just it was minor laughing or sneering. But to them, this was a very costly thing to identify with such a person. Very costly thing for them to call themselves a follower of Christ, one who was like Christ. We'll pause right there for this edition of Crosswalk Radio and pick up next time as we continue our exposition of the Book of Romans. We thank you for tuning in today and encourage you to tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.